Welcome to the Agile Book Club podcast, where we hang out and talk shop with the authors whose ideas are shaping the agile landscape. Here is your host, Paul Clip. I had the privilege of attending the best high school in the whole United States of America. And that's, that's not hyperbole, it's just the rankings. Consistently ranked as the top high school in the entire country for decades. And one of the remarkable things about this school was, aside from the wonderful teachers, the small class sizes, the focus on academic excellence, and of course, the wonderful students that, that attended, were the amazing extracurricular activities. And one of these that we looked forward to every year was a school-wide trip to the desert, a long drive and a week in the desert, which is a very inhospitable environment during which we would engage in environmental activities, uh, geography activities, paleontology activities. It was remarkable. The highlight of the trip was a full day, 20 plus mile hike to the highest point. So it combined two inhospitable environments, mountains and desert. Now, you take a few hundred teenagers and set them loose on a mountain. They very quickly get very, very spread out. And we would call to each other along the trails and hear the calls coming back, echoing from the distance and from behind. It was a remarkable time to be a teenager. This is the 1980s. Teenagers didn't get a lot of supervision back then like they do now. And we were mostly on our own, all the way to the tiny little peak, which was a bit of a treacherous climb to get up get up to. It was a narrow path. And I have remarkable, wonderful memories of that trip. But I was I was horrified to discover over a decade later after I had finished university and traveled the world, and I was back in in my hometown visiting, and I came across a student who was a student at that school in the present time, and she told me a horrific story about a tragic accident when one of those students, years after I graduated, on that trip, attempted to, to descend the mountain on the wrong side and did not succeed. Needless to say, the trip was canceled and never happened again. The teacher who was responsible for those hundred students on the mountain spread all over, who had enjoyed it year after year after year without anything bad happening, was fired, and no student would ever enjoy that trip again. I tell that story in order to help the next one sink in. And it's a story that you're going to hear referenced in this interview. It's the story of Herbie. This is a metaphor that we're going to be using to talk about optimizing throughput. And the metaphor is one of a scout troop, a group of teenagers who have to hike from point A to point B. Now, I know from experience that left to their own devices, both common variation, some have long legs, some have short legs, some are athletic, some less so, and special cause variation. Some might get lost, some might encounter difficulties, some might sprain their ankles, are going to result in an enormous amount of variability in the way in which this scout troop traverses the territory. And so, in this metaphor, Herbie is the darling scout 
with the heaviest pack and the shortest legs. And he is a metaphor for the throughput of the entire system. Because if what you care about is not how fast the first scout can get to point B, but when the last scout gets to point B, when all of the scouts are safely accounted for, then it's Herbie who matters the most. And I share that story because there are a lot of different techniques for dealing with Herbie, for helping Herbie, for supporting Herbie, and for accounting for the fact that every system has a Herbie. And you're going to hear us talking about Herbie in both the first and the second part of these next episodes of the Agile Book Club podcast, in which I will be talking to Steve Tendon about his book, Tame Flow. It is a delight to see you again. I'm aware that one of the challenges in talking about this is that this is a podcast about books, and we talk about books, and the goal is to encourage the right people to read the books that are going to be helpful for them. So the challenge in talking about the book of Tame Flow is kind of like the challenge of talking about the original Scrum book with Ken Schwaber or talking about the Blue Book with David Anderson, is that you can't really separate the book from all of the ideas around it since it is the definitive statement of an approach to work. And so we're going to deal with a bit of both of them. But let's start out with the book. Who did you write this book for? Who were you hoping would read it? And what do you hope they would get out of it? Oh, Paul, you're starting with the most difficult question at the very beginning here, because this has really been a challenge in general for me, talking about TameFlow and then specifically the book. Why? Well, because TameFlow is, if you want, a systems thinking approach. We consider the whole company, the entire organization, ins and outs and ups and downs. So in principle, there are tidbits of wisdom for anyone in the organization. And that makes it so hard to position and target. But if I were to suggest someone to read this book, I think it would be someone who is in charge of a software engineering organization. Now, keep in mind, TameFlow is broad. So I typically say it applies to collaborative knowledge work in general, and it does. But because my background is from software engineering, I would still keep that framing. It is for people who are in charge of software engineering organizations, departments, units. And I would say in particular, if they are in that uncomfortable position where business meets technology, where on the one side, you have all the challenges of uh, driving, leading the software development part to the best of your effort. And on the other side, you have the demands of business. Bottom line, where are the numbers, the deadlines, and all those pressures that come with that position? So someone who is maybe a software engineering manager, a PMO, VP of software, that kind of role would benefit the most. However, as I said, there are bits and pieces that can help almost anyone in this field. Absolutely. And as, as we get deeper into this, as we start getting to the second half of this interview, there are certainly going to be topics that would be of interest to even Scrum Masters and team members when we're talking about different kinds of idleness and such. But staying pretty high level, it's really difficult not to contrast Tameflow with the Kanban method. And you do it a lot in your own book. 
What is it? What makes Tame Flow distinct from the Kanban method? Not as it's commonly practiced as a team level practice, but as it's intended to be used. I'm thinking about the more recent KMM model. Well, maybe we should look a bit at the history because Tameflow, the ideas of Tameflow go back well before Kanban came about. My domain, so to say, of study and of guidance that has guided me over many, many years since the mid-90s has been uh, languages and pattern theory and in particular organizational patterns. Of course, the focus was always trying to organize uh, people to design organizations for higher levels of performance, for high-performing organizations and teams. And in the patterns uh, world, there are a few organizational patterns or behavioral patterns that are uh, like a trademark of high-performing organizations. And one at the center of my work was the unity of purpose. Everyone stands behind one idea, and there is a lot of energy coming together. Often, you will hear high-sounding statements about uh, unit of purpose, but they are like declarations that you will see on the placards of the of the sea levels in the, the boardrooms and so on. My unit of purpose is not aspirational. It's actionable. And I was striving to find ways to cause it to happen. So not an aspiration, but something that you cause. It was always very hard, but at a certain point, I ran across David Anderson's book. I don't even remember the name, Ad- Agile Software Engineering Management with the Theory of Constraints, something like that. Maybe you want to double check the title. His first one, yeah. The first one. And that was my discovery of TOC. So uh, the Theory of Constraints all of a sudden became extremely interesting. Why? Well, because if you could focus on the constraint of that singular weak point of the whole organization, you had like a catalyst around which the minds, eyes, thoughts, actions, decisions of everyone could come around. So it was a way to cause the unit of purpose to come about. Now, it so happened, as you know, that David, at a certain point, declared that no, you cannot use theory constraints in knowledge work. And that was when he started to promote his uh, Kanban method. And for me, that was a tragedy because Herbie, as you know, the colloquial name for the constraint, my best friend, well, he got murdered there. He was no longer part of the scene. And I desperately wanted to bring him back. So that kicked off my long journey trying to figure out you know, how can you find the constraint in a non-knowledge work setting. And therefore, if you're able to do that, that is step one of the five focusing steps of Goldrap, everything else follows. You can apply the theory of constraints in a, its broadest uh, acceptation. And therefore, you will get a means to cause the unit of purpose. And I was back to where I started, where I wanted to be. So how does this compare to Kanban? Well, I'm not that familiar with the latest incarnations with the Kanban maturity model, but I can certainly see that the philosophy has diverged a lot from that first book, David on TOC, because the Kanban maturity model defines like many areas where actions need to be taken, undertaken. And that, from my perspective, because I have the TOC mindset, that is very wasteful, extremely wasteful, because if you don't act on the constraint, anything else is literally a waste of time, effort, and money. So that's how I would summarize that, that in the the Kanban method, and I would say in all other popular approaches, like SAFE and NPM, you name them, 
you try to improve everywhere with the idea that that will improve what you really want want to see. But that's not my case. I really focus on on the minimal thing that you had to act on to get the improvement. And anything else, you can just ignore it because it's irrelevant. If your context is simple enough, I'm thinking the five-person engineering team that is managing their entire flow end-to-end, it doesn't really matter that much whether you're using Tameflow, Scrum, or Kanban. Everything's visual. You can see everything that's happening. What strikes me as exciting about Tameflow is the way it, it proposes to bring simplicity, simplicity of action to incredibly complex environments, what you call pest environments. What is it about the pest environment that makes it so difficult to apply other management models? First, let's verify what the pest environment is, because the, the acronym could also be misunderstood with uh, other management acronyms that are around. For me, the PEST environment, PEST stands for projects or products, events, stakeholders, and teams. And when you have a multitude of them, when you have many, many projects, products, work streams, when you have many, many stakeholders, many, many teams, many events or deadlines, the situation is very chaotic. And any management approach, whether it is classical project management or agile or the scaled variations of Agile or Kanban, maybe even with the, the great idea of flight levels, you don't get a way to have the situation under control, especially if you want high performance, control under high performance, like a sports car. You want to have that feeling, so to say, that you have when you have your hands on the steering wheel of a high-performing car. You know that just a nudge will, uh, will turn it on the spot There are no delays between the decision of making something and seeing the effect of that. But in all these methods, there are so many points of uh, friction and counter-friction that everything just boils down to a standstill. And those in charge really do not feel in charge at all. So we go back to what I said before. If you find a focal point in this big mess, well, you know where to focus attention. And one of the key ideas of Goldratt was that, even though some people might disagree, but was that the ultimate constraint at the end of the day is management attention. Actually, for me, I take that one step further because I say that the ultimate constraint is the mental model that allows you to understand from your perspective how the world works and therefore drives your decisions and the decisions drive your actions. So in any case, Management attention is a key component of all of this because it's from that kind of attention that the important decisions originate. They start from there in, in the mind of, of a manager. So if the manager is totally overloaded because there are like steering committee meetings where every other account manager, product owner, project manager come in and they are all screaming and crying. They are all asking for help, so to say, because their product is the most urgent. Well, management attention is spread very, very thin. So if we can create a means to extract the significant relevant signal from all of that bubbling background noise, well, management attention can focus and can make a relevant decision on that critical spot. And all the rest just goes to the background. Indeed. And, and in the second half of this interview, we're definitely going to get into how to use management signals. But there is this idea... I see it too often that if you get enough high-level people into a room, 
they can solve all of the problems through discussion. And it turns into just simply too much information and not the right kind of information. And so what I love about TameFlow is the idea that it focuses on just the information that really matters and bubbling it to the surface. But earlier, you were talking about mindset, the mindset that's necessary for making this work. And that strikes me as one of the most challenging aspects. There's two in particular that you mentioned in the book, two among others, unity of purpose and community of trust. It strikes me that two of the mindsets that you talk about in the book, unity of purpose and community of trust, are absolutely essential to making tame flow work in an organization. But most organizations are full of disincentives that are undermining exactly those mindsets. Disincentives like hierarchical management. I think Klaus Leopold talks about uh, leadership teams as, as not so much of a team as a group of competitors, because once you get to a certain level of an organization, everybody on the team is a career employee and they're all struggling to work up a ladder that gets more and more narrow. And at the same time, you've got below them, each person has their individual goals or individual assessments. How realistic is it to take an organization like that and align them around a new mindset like unity of purpose and community of trust? The question highlights the current state where you certainly have many of these structures, drivers, and forces that actually create, let's say, a disharmony within the organization because it sets the scenario where conflicts, even unstated conflicts, conflicts of interests are pervasive. I ask, what is the root cause for this? Typically, these hierarchies, silos, KPIs, uh, even OKRs, which are more modern, all are put in place with the intent, with the intent of improving the organization's performance. And for me, performance comes in four dimensions. It's financial, it's operational, it's organizational, and it's human. It corresponds to my four flows. So if the objective is to improve performance, that's like from where we should start. It's the why. Why are these things in place? And I would approach the CEO of such an organization and first validate, are you here to improve these four dimensions of performance? Most likely the CEO is concerned by the financial performance more than anyone. And in fact, the financial aspect is key. So my next question would be, well, would you consider something alternative to what you're doing that could improve dramatically your financial performance? And I would presume that there is an interest because the desire to prove themselves as great business leaders is huge. And that opens up the discourse to one of the greatest fields of the theory of constraints, which is throughput economics, throughput accounting. If you're able to bring in the idea of throughput economics into the leadership of the company, then they will realize and strive and push for the adoption of completely different decision-making criteria, so the mental models I was talking about before, where everyone is on the same page, everyone is rowing in the same direction, because the objective of maximizing the financial throughput is of such nature that if there are conflicts, you will not do that. So it's a means of finding, identifying, and removing conflicts in the organization. Now, of course, 
it doesn't happen overnight. But if that is the direction towards which the company is striving, then we also have the tools to address these conflicts. It's not something I talk about in the book specifically, but they come out of TOC. They are known as the logical thinking processes. The most famous technique from there is the so-called evaporated cloud, the conflict resolution diagram. And that's what you could put in place to bring different perspectives together, because if they do share that same goal to increase the company's financial performance, those conflicts can be resolved. It's very hard for someone to stand in front of the CEO and say, no, I do not want to improve the financial performance of the company. I think that would be a very career-limiting move. So if both parties agree that, yes, we both want that, okay, then we have to go down one step and see what are the the needs you're trying to address in your respective positions, what is it you really want, and there you build this instrument, the conflict resolution cloud, and work with that. So yes, it can be done, but it certainly requires operating at the sea levels situation. Now, when you say that in order to apply the ideas, any set of ideas, the first step is to have the ear of the CEO, you lose 99% of the listening audience of this podcast who may never actually be able to bend the ear of a CEO of a multinational company. But presumably, especially since what we're talking about here is, uh, for the most part, um, engineering knowledge work, being able to influence leaders on a departmental level could also open up the possibility assuming that a coach or a change agent is able to articulate the benefits of throughput accounting as opposed to cost accounting. Is that fair to say? Yes, I would say that if you look at the company hierarchy, the, uh, the quote-unquote lowest level where this, uh, this conversation can be held is the, some manager that has, uh, is at least a budget owner, if not one that has profit and loss responsibility. Of course, it depends on the structure of the business and uh, the business model and so on. Maybe even at lower levels, because the ideas of throughput economics, throughput accounting can be applied even in very practical terms. As you know, in the book, I I teach how to prioritize work on the basis of uh, the financial throughput rate. So that is typically a concept that comes straight out of the throughput economics book. Those are techniques that you can, uh, you can teach the teams to employ. If they are questioned, you know, why did you do A before B or C or D, they can justify it in economic terms. And that is something that most likely will be appreciated. Of course, you always have the problems of the hippo in the room and all of that. But if you have some grounding to justify your decisions on an economic basis rather than I think, I feel, well, you're much better off. Could you, for the benefit of our our listeners, describe the difference between throughput accounting and cost accounting? In cost accounting, really strive to improve the financial performance by focusing on costs and reducing costs. It sort of makes logical sense. That's what you do when you go to the supermarket. You want, I don't know, a a can of of oil or whatever. You take the one that that gives you the most bang for the buck. So reducing cost is something we we are all accustomed to. But Here we are not buying an item in a market. Here we are talking about some kind of, uh, please understand this word correctly, because in in the software world, it might be a red trade. There is some kind of production. 
And I don't mean material, physical production. It's immaterial work, it's knowledge work, it's uh, that whole process that goes from ideation until these ideas are embodied into a piece of code that is deployed and used. But it is a production process. And the production process unrolls in a very important dimension, which is time, the time dimension. So how long something takes to be done is really important compared to what it brings home. So Don Reinertsen, that came up with this uh, idea of the cost of delay, introduced the idea of economic prioritization as cost of delay divided by duration, CD3 as it's known. And you see that in this division, you have a cost at the top, so it's a money value, and you have a time at the denominator, it's, it's a duration. That's very close to the idea of throughput accounting, where the numerator remains the same, but we are much more specific in defining what do we put as the denominator. And specifically, we take time, the cycle time, if you want to use a Kanban term, I call it the flow time and there is a difference, but in principle, it's the same thing. So you take the cycle time on the constraint of the system. That time is, of course, much smaller than the end-to-end time through the entire system. And it is such that the... uh, prioritization that you might do with CD3 can be radically different than the one that you do with this financial throughput rate. So going back to your question, how does this compare to cost accounting? Well, cost accounting tries to reduce the the cost of things, while the throughput economics tries to increase what you get back from your organization's work. The less it takes, the more you earn. And of course, the implications of that are that a cost accounting mindset looks at each unit of cost, each person, each resource, each piece of equipment, and asks, how do I maximize the work I get out of this? Whereas the throughput accounting approach looks at the system as a whole and says, how can I process the most value through this system in a given unit of time? Very correct. Which leads to a very common phenomenon and I, I want to explore this a little bit. There's something that you wrote in the book, and I'd like to hear you explain this a bit. And that is that miscommunication is often the result of people not sharing the same mental models. And I can imagine a conversation between somebody who has a throughput mindset and a person who has a cost accounting mindset being very, very difficult to reconcile with each other. So You write that miscommunication is often the result of people not sharing the same mental models. Could you explain what you mean by that and what it looks like in practice? How do you recognize that's happening? Well, mental models are how you perceive uh, the world. It's it's really a matter of perceptions and how you interpret that world and consequently how you make decisions and then enact enact your decisions. Most mental models are present in, uh, in your mind and you're not even aware of them. They can just be maybe more relatable to to habits of thought or just habits. You take them for granted. They are good because they allow you to take shortcuts. You don't need to think. The decision comes out uh, immediately. And because they are so invisible and you're not aware of them, when more people have maybe conflicts of vision or even conflicts of interest, they're not even able to verbalize what is their root of that difference. It's just, I want this, I want that. There is no real articulation of deeper reasons. And uh, at times, it it can be 
like consequential of, as you mentioned before, like incentive structure. Let's stay like in the world of cost accounting. In the first book, the hyper performance book of 2014, I had an example of this where a very silly example of building some gadgets and widgets where there was an obvious choice that was the best from a financial perspective because it had the lowest cost. But then you could have maybe a head of sales who would prefer another product. Why? Well, because the commissions on that product are higher, so it's his best interest. And then you might have the head of production who would prefer yet another product. Why? Well, because that product would keep his employees busier, so more resource efficiency and therefore a better utilization per unit of cost. And already there you have three perspectives on, on the same simple question, which product should be, should be produced and sell. And you might get to very dysfunctional behaviors where the choice in that model of cost accounting is the best, the one supported by the CFO, so to say, is not taken. Why? Because maybe, I don't know, the, the head of sales goes out one evening with the head of production, they have a few beers, and they come to a sort of agreement. Now, why don't you produce a bit more of these and I sell a bit more of, of those? And none of those are what maximizes profit for the, for the company. So these mental models uh, are not only creating conflicts, they are also structuring the communications like behind the scenes, the creation of uh, friends and foes inside the organization. And for this reason, it becomes really powerful. A powerful idea is to clarify, articulate exactly what mental models we want to have and those that derive from the focusing on the constraint and throughput economics will typically take away all these misunderstandings and conflicts of interest and uh, strange agreements made over the happy hour beer. You know, I often say one of the things I like about explicit statements of values in organizations is that within the context of the organization, even if people in that organization do not personally hold those values, they can be held accountable to behaving as though they did. And by the same token, if the mental model that the organization expects its leadership to work from is explicit, then even a person who doesn't necessarily hold that mental model can pretend to hold that mental model and act as though they did while they're in a conversation in the workplace. Yes and no. We like metrics. We like numbers. And especially if you are uh, trying to find Herbie in your system, so the constraint, you might find the constraint in, uh, in someone or a group, a team or a unit that is trying to play the game, as you were suggesting or hinting. Now, what happens? What happens if the CEO and top management have this focus on finding and uh, applying the five focusing steps on the constraint? They find the Herbie. So what do we do when you find Herbie? You help Herbie. We see that you have a problem here. Now, all the company, you, you know, the, the five focusing steps, one is identify, the second is exploit, terrible expression, but it's what it is. And the third is subordinate, which basically means we help you. So the whole company comes there and says, now we stand behind you. We are all here helping you. We are all here looking at you now what the problem is. And all of a sudden, the spotlight is on that person. And therefore, there is a strong, strong peer pressure to not play games, but to play the game. 
if I can put it that way. So that was the high-level conversation about Tameflow. But if you found that interesting, if you found that intriguing, I would strongly recommend that you take a look at the resources, which I'm going to share in the show notes, and you get a copy of the book and read ahead. Because in two weeks, I'll be releasing the second half of my interview with Steve Tendon, in which we go into the details. We get down and dirty into how Tameflow is actually implemented in a software development environment. And I think you're going to find it fascinating. It was a remarkable conversation, one of my favorite interviews ever. You can look forward to that in two weeks. And until then, thank you for listening.